Well, I'm going to ask you this morning to turn with me in the Word of God to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 as we continue our series in this great book of Acts. passage this morning will be verses 1 through 6, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, in an errant word of the living God. Now it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. He said to them, did you ever receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were, in all, about 12 men. You may be seated. It's interesting to us, uh, as we read the Word of God, from time to time we come across statements that we might wonder, why are they there? We have one of those statements, I suppose, here in verse 1, where you learn the editorial remark from the writer of this book, Luke, that Paul was passing through the upper country. Gives us a sense of the timeline and situation and context, though, in which this particular passage emerges. Because you know here that you're told that Apollos was at Corinth. We just read about that in Acts 18 as we expounded that text, that after a season of ministry in Ephesus, he went on to Corinth in order to strengthen in faith those who had already believed by grace. And so it was a time when this uh, fledgling new church in Ephesus, we could hardly even call yet, a church plant was without ministry, without a pastor. But at some point in that time, the hand of the Lord was upon the Apostle Paul to move him to travel through this region which is identified as the upper country, which is the Caster River Valley. And there's something interesting about the descent down that windy pathway that led through the river valley to Ephesus. Because at some point as the Apostle Paul was walking down there or riding upon his donkey, he began to see on the horizon before him the unfolding of a vast city. That was Ephesus. In the day of the Apostle Paul, the city of Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, which means that it was a city of hundreds of thousands of people. And so as he took notice of that city before him, it must have really captured his attention, his imagination, as he saw the sprawl of the city across the landscape. But as he made his way down that valley and he began his descent towards the city, it wasn't the tree-lined seats or the city square or, or even the, the bustling suburbs and the town that captivated him. Instead, it was a focal point just outside of the city called the Temple of Artemis. You see, this Temple of Artemis was a massive structure. 
It was larger than a football field, and it was elevated on a point or promontory overlooking the city, so you could literally say it cast its shadow across the vast city of Ephesus. And because of its architecture, its massive columns, and because of its architecture, because of the ornate sculpture, that dotted and decorated the entire facility there, it was described as one of the world's seven great wonders. As Paul drew near the city, no doubt that captivated his attention. But not because of its beauty. Not because uh, the temple uh, was one of the great wonders of the world. But what captivated his attention about the temple was how it lay hold of the hearts and the minds of the people of Ephesus. You see, if Ephesus was identified as anything in that era, in that place, and across the Roman Empire, it was identified by virtue of devotion to Artemis. For the city of Ephesus, Artemis was everything. She was the goddess of fertility. She was the goddess of hunting. She was the goddess of forests and trees and childbirth. You could say their entire life revolved around devotion to Artemis, or as the Romans called her, Diana. So you see, as he noticed the architecture and the massive sprawling complex of the temple, it wasn't the physical structure which captivated him. What captivated him was that this city was under the stranglehold of a false god. Because all of their life, each day that they lived, revolved around the worship and service of Diana. And the worship of that goddess spawned a corrupt and dark culture. If you read on the text before you hear this morning, one of the things that you'll notice is that the city was awash in black magic. It was awash in idolatry and evil spirits and a cottage industry of book publishing which was making gobs and fortunes of money off of people, cold cash for selling them spells and incantations and the practice of witchcraft. Truly, the cult of Diana captured the hearts and minds and moods of the people in this vast city. And as Paul saw it, what he saw was the prospect of mission. But the other thing he saw was a field which was impossible to serve. He needed help. He needed servants. He needed co-workers. And it's uh, that connection of ideas that we need to lay hold of as, as you come into your text and you read the story of these 12 very confused disciples. Because again, it's one of these texts as you read them in the New Testament, you always ask yourself, why in the world did you learn about these through Luke? And the answer is because the message which the apostle wanted to bring is he confirmed these disciples in faith in order that he may partner with him in mission. That's what we're going to think about this morning. Being confirmed in faith as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be partners together in mission for the kingdom of God. I'm going to unfold your text here this morning in two parts. Confused disciples and spiritual confirmation. Confused disciples and spiritual confirmation. 
And one of the things that we want to see, first of all, is as confused as they are, and we'll talk about their confusion and their ignorance here in a moment, they are indeed disciples, they are believers, they are Christians. As odd as it may feel at first when we think about that. Notice how here they are classified by Luke. They are classified, first of all, as disciples. Notice he's found some disciples. And that word disciples, when it's used throughout the book of Acts, refers to believers and to Christians. You can verify that for yourself. Just look at verse 9. The same term is used of the people whom Paul had been ministering to and the Ephesian synagogue, and you're told here that Paul took from there disciples. So you see, it's consistent with uh, Luke's usage as a whole. It's consistent with uh, Luke's use of the term here in this passage to call disciples or Christians disciples. But there's something else here in your passage which would lead us all to believe that they are indeed Christians. Notice the question here in verse 2. He said to them, that is these disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now the very structure of this question as you read it in the original would lead us to believe that there's something of temporal sequence involved. In fact, you could translate this, after you believed, did you receive the Spirit? But by phrasing it that way, what the Apostle Paul is clearly indicating is that somehow, based probably through casual conversation with the disciples, he has determined that they have believed. They're Christians. They have faith. And therefore, they are to be regarded as brethren. And just to confirm that that's an adequate and a correct interpretation, you can see if your Bible are open, you could look back at Acts 18.27 where you're told there about the ministry of Apollos, and one thing you learn there is he greatly helped those who had believed. You see, we have the very same terminology used there, and that terminology is used to describe people who had already given their life to Christ through faith. Same terminology used here, and the indication then is that they're Christians. That's important to keep in mind as we work our way through the text. But as soon as we can, um, based upon the terms used in the text, regard them as believers, the next thing I think we would say is it seems like they're grossly ignorant. It seems like they're grossly ignorant. And that ignorance is spelled out now in three different ways. We can just say confusion, whichever term uh, you like to use. It's not being used pejoratively. We're just simply saying something obvious here. They lack something that they should know. And so you see, first of all, they seem to be ignorant of the Holy Spirit. This is a very interesting question the Apostle Paul addresses to them. He said in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now before you fall off your chairs gasping this morning, regarding them as believers, but somehow not knowing of the Holy Spirit, we need to think here of what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he asks the question. After you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And one of the things we want to be thinking here is, what does Paul mean by the question? And one way to get at the proper understanding of that is to remind ourselves what we've just said so clearly. They have believed. How does somebody believe? Is faith something you can summon up from within you? Is faith something that you produce yourself? 
Is faith something that you come into life equipped with? Well, the answer is no. We come into this life with sin. We come into this life with corruption. We come enslaved to our our, our corruption and sin. We don't come with faith. The way we believe is through grace, just as we read here in Acts 18.27. They had believed through grace. Faith is a gift. Faith comes as, as the Holy Spirit works upon our hearts and regenerates us and makes us new and quickens us and makes us alive spiritually. So when we hear Paul ask, did you receive the Spirit? We shouldn't be thinking, first of all, is he asking them whether they're regenerate? We shouldn't be asking if they've experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because by virtue of the fact that they are believers, we already know that they have been regenerated. And the Spirit of God abides in them. So what does he mean? There's a passage that may clear it up. If your Bibles are open, you can turn there with me. It's it's in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 8. And we have a parallel use of terms which begins to help us understand and spotlight what's at stake here when we hear the question, have you received the Holy Spirit? Because here, what we read in verse 15 is the same language. Uh, They had come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. There's your language, which is parallel. Notice here that this is the apostles. This is Peter and John. They've been sent down from Jerusalem by, by the church there because they heard that some people in Samaria had come to faith in Christ through Philip's preaching. And the key is, you can see that they are truly believers. Verse 12 makes that very clear. They believed Philip preaching the good news, and they were being baptized. So the question here in our text is not whether they're believers. The question here in our text is not whether they are regenerate or have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in them. It's something else. And that's why these apostles are sent down that they may pray for them, that they may receive the Holy Spirit. You see the rest of it in verse 16, and we can even come back to that in a moment as we pick this text up in another connection. It says the reason why they were praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit, for He had not yet fallen upon them. They have simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So one thing that we gather here as we piece all of these things together is we note, first of all, that these are believers, but there's a problem with them. And the problem with them is that they haven't been confirmed by this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the clarification comes now as you read on. No, they haven't received the Spirit. And here's the rest of what they said. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. That's the statement that probably grabs you the most when you read this text. That's the thing that you read it, you've got to say, and you're thinking, there's no way they can be believers. Because even in the little children's catechism, which you learn in the Presbyterian church growing up, you learn that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even a child knows that. So you say this morning, how in the world can we call these people believers and they don't even know that there is such a person in the Godhead as Holy Spirit? 
And this is where it's interesting. A lot of commentators who, who regard them as unbelievers or not fully Christian, when they hear this, they say, don't conclude that this statement must be taken straightforwardly like that. Because uh, remember who they are. We've read the text already. They've been baptized with John's baptism. What does that tell you this morning? They've been baptized with John's baptism. Well, it tells you this morning that they're Jews. It means they're Jews, and if they're Jews, it means that they have read their Bibles. And one of the things that they would have read in the Old Testament is about the Holy Spirit. Just one passage, if you will, this morning in, in your thinking. You know, as, uh, as we read in Luke or Acts chapter 2 of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, and these odd cloven tongues of fire rested upon the heads of the people who were there at Pentecost who began speaking in tongues and prophesying, caused a massive commotion throughout Jerusalem. Peter stood up and he defended them against being drunk first thing in the morning because that's what people thought it sounded like. And do you remember the very first text he cited? He was Joel 2.28. I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind and they will prophesy and dream dreams and see visions. You see, being Jewish meant they knew the Bible, and knowing the Bible meant that they had read about the Holy Spirit. They knew there was such a person as the Holy Spirit. And also, being disciples of John, they would have heard about the Holy Spirit. But remember what summarized John's preaching. He said, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming, who's mightier than I, he will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. So as you piece all of those things together, as you investigate the meaning of these words with what you know about the Bible and the context and who these people are, one thing you begin to realize is this alarming statement isn't as bad as it sounds, even though I'll grant you it's still not what we would like. And what does it mean then? What it would seem to mean is they didn't know anything about Jesus Christ's ascension. They didn't know anything about Christ seated at the right hand of God in glory and reigning in power. They didn't know anything about the day of Pentecost and, and Jesus Christ pouring out the Spirit. They were ignorant of all. So why does Paul ask that question? And the answer goes back to that vision of the Apostle I, I set before you as he's walking down the Castor River Valley towards Ephesus. And, and that vision and, which unfolded before him in the landscape of this massive city. And that temple which dominated its landscape. You see, what he understood was this was a massive missionary undertaking. It wasn't something for a lonely apostle to do all by himself. He needed people who were equipped by the Spirit of God to, to be co-laborers and workers and servers for the kingdom of Christ and the gospel. But there was no way he could do that unless he found co-workers who were so equipped. 
And so as he finds these disciples and he discerns that they are believers, what he desperately wants to know is, are you ready for mission? And so he asks, did you receive the Spirit? No. We don't even know about Pentecost yet. So that's the first layer of ignorance. It's not good, but it doesn't mean they're not believers yet. And then there's another layer of confusion here. So, so Paul asks another question. He's asked one question. He's gotten an answer. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? No. Well, here comes another question. And he said in verse 3, Into what were you baptized? John's baptism. You see, that's a very logical follow-up question if you think about it. Because Paul is well aware of these two contrasting baptisms. He's very well aware of John's baptism. And then he remembered also that John said his is a baptism with water. But John said, there is one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so Paul's aware of these baptisms. And he says, you haven't received the Spirit. You haven't heard of Pentecost. Well, what baptism were you baptized into? That's a great question, a logical question, an incisive and penetrating question. Well, it's John's baptism. You know what's interesting about that question, though? You could learn a lot about somebody based upon that question. And the reason is because of the nature of John's baptism. It was for a particular people. John's baptism was for a particular people. It was for Jewish people. It was for people who are already in covenant with God, who already serve the Lord. It was for a particular time. It, it was for a time and place right before the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was for a particular purpose. Preparation. It was for preparation to meet the coming of the Lord. You go back to Malachi chapter 4, which was written 300 years, maybe 400 years before John the Baptist begins to be that crying voice in the wilderness calling for the people of God to make straight the way of the Lord. You know what he asked there? Do you know what the Lord says there in Malachi 4? He says, I am going to send Elijah, my prophet, before you to prepare for the great and coming day of the Lord. Hundreds of years before John stands up crying in the wilderness and he starts pouring baptismal waters upon Jews who are lined up for miles. He, he said something very clearly. Before the Lord comes, I'm going to send forth my prophet to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And that's John the Baptist. Jesus Himself says that. He was the Elijah who was to come. And His baptism the, was a baptism, a preparation for particular people at a particular time, for a particular purpose. And it all passed away. So, by asking this question into what then were you baptized, he is able now to discern their spiritual experience. He is able to discern who they are. And so then he moves on from there to clarify something about Jesus to them. 
At this point, it's very obvious the Apostle Paul knows what he is dealing with, even though they're believers. He, he has now a fix on them, a radar fix, if you will. They are disciples. They are true believers. They have received a particular kind of baptism, but they haven't done something yet which was important. And so now we see what he does in verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in Him who is coming after Him. That is, in Jesus. Notice here that Paul understands them now. What Paul refers to now is they admitted that they have received John's baptism. He said, well, here's what's peculiar about it. It was a baptism of repentance. Remember the way it was summarized in the Word of God in Luke chapter 3 that that John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And you know, people of God, if you had seen John preach and you had heard him preach, you would have sensed that this man was blood earnest about his calling. There was something peculiar about him. Remember, he was dressed funny. He was wearing itchy clothes, a camel hair shirt with a leather belt around him, wearing sandals in the middle of the desert. He, he wasn't uh, one of these um, uh, perfectly manicured tele-evangelists. He didn't have a, a sharp suit and polished white teeth and, and a mannerism and a style that looked good on TV. If he had anything, he had a face for radio. But... but he preached with a solemnity and a, and a weight and a gravity about it. And the whole manner of his preaching was to get people to realize they needed to be prepared to meet the Lord. And the preparation was repentance. There's something very interesting. We have a, a living image uh, of how he preached and the message that, that Luke records that he gave to some people who had been listening to his preaching. And they must have come under a great sense of conviction, you know, as they heard him call people to repentance. Because Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3 that people came to him and asked him, well, what do we do? We've heard the call to receive this baptism, and we're receiving this baptism, but what do we do? What shows that we've understood the message and processed it and are making ourselves ready for this coming of the Lord? And here's what John said. If you have two tunics, give one to somebody else. If you have extra food, share it with a friend. To the tax collectors, he said, they said, well, what shall we do? He says, well, don't collect more taxes than you're authorized to. The soldiers came to him. They said, well, what do we do? And to the soldiers said, well, don't take money from anyone by force. In other words, don't just parrot the right words with your mouth. Don't just say, yes, I, I repent of my sins and I confess my sins and just leave it at that. He said the call to repentance is one that is authenticated by whether you change your life. The call to repentance is authenticated by whether you've changed how you act. The call to repentance is authenticated by how you express yourself, by how you live, by how you think of your neighbor, by how you regard others, by how you treat others, by how you speak to other people. 
You see, this morning, people of God, you can know whether you're repentant. Because with repentance, is not just saying, I did something wrong. But with repentance comes, I'm seeking to change my life. Are you baptized? Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, if you have, we understand that to be a washing with water from our sins through the, the blood and Spirit of Christ. We understand that that is a visible image which presents a picture of the Gospel. It means my sins are under the blood of Christ. That I believe in the shed blood of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. But it also means something else. That we are now to take that knowledge, that washing, and apply it to a sanctifying end that we're to continue to die unto sin and to seek to live a, a life of obedience. The Westminster Larger Catechism has this awkward-sounding phrase to us about how to improve our baptism, by which is not meant that somehow we need to clear up any deficiencies or inadequacies or some lack that baptism has in it. No, improving it means that we're to take the meaning and the substance and the significance of baptism and put it to work in our life. And here's what it says. That those who have been baptized are to improve it by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the killing of our sin and quickening of grace and endeavoring to live by faith. Have you been baptized? The call of baptism this morning is roughly the same in a sense as it was for John's disciples. A call to repent. A call to draw forth strength from the Lord and His grace. So Paul says, yes, I know the meaning of that baptism very well. It's a, it's a baptism of repentance. And as a Pharisee, that is something that struck me like a two before right between the eyes. But he said there was something else about this baptism. And it's uh, very vividly set forth here in verse 4. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming. You know, what's interesting about this in the original, uh, what stands before the verb believe is, in whom is coming after Him. It's as if the Apostle is putting Jesus Christ under a spotlight. He is the coming one. He says John's baptism in his entire ministry was about pointing people to Christ. And it's so interesting here how Paul references him, making it very explicit that the coming one, that is the one who is coming after Paul, or rather John, the one of promise, is Jesus. The name of his historical person. It's very clear to me what Paul is doing is he is connecting their faith to a real person. 
for whatever reason, and we don't have the details, and this is one of the things which makes passages such as this a bit mysterious to us. We don't have the reasons, but we know what happened. They left town before Jesus began preaching. And somehow they made their migration and journey all the way over to Ephesus. And let me tell you, this is more than 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion. They may be 25 years into the faith. They may have been holding this hope of promise in their soul for all of these years. And what they didn't know is that the coming one that John preached, who was to be the object of their faith, is Jesus. They'd never heard him preach, they never saw his miracles. They didn't know about His cross. They didn't know about His resurrection. They were like an Old Testament Jew looking forward to the hope of promise who was the Messiah. They just didn't know His name was Jesus. You see what Paul does here to confirm these disciples in faith? He says, the one that you've been waiting for, the one that you've been expecting, the one who is your hope, the one who is your life, the one who is your Savior, the one who is the Christ, it's Jesus. He does that to confirm their faith and to fix it. He does that to fix their faith on Jesus and the cross and He thinks through that whole concept of of a baptism unto repentance and a washing with water. And that's just an empty ceremony, people of God, if there isn't Christ. There's nothing significant about a religious ritual of sprinkling water on something. It's a complete waste of time. If it's not about Jesus, if it's not about the shed blood of the cross, if it doesn't have a, a, a specific, fixed reference point... You see, what Paul is doing is he is fixing the hope of forgiveness of sins in the cross of Jesus Christ and His shed blood. Do you have that hope this morning? What a a vast difference there is between those disciples and us. They look forward in hope to the fulfillment of that great promise in that one through whom they would receive the forgiveness of sins. But look where we are this morning. We're looking backwards, full of hope. Every single time your heart becomes overwhelmed and weighed down and you become anxious to wonder whether there's really any help for you, whether there's any hope for you, whether there's any uh, help for the forgiveness of your sins. You're in a position that was far better than theirs because you're not looking back upon a ceremony of washing that happened 25 years ago in the middle of a desert. The baptismal water long ago dried up, hoping that it would somehow come to fulfillment sometime soon. You look back upon a cross, a completed event, Christ. You see... Paul fixes their faith upon Jesus and thereby confirms them now for mission. 
You can't go around teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody you don't even know the name Jesus. And that there's forgiveness through His shed blood. I'm struck by something here this morning, people of God, as we think about this for our application. We think of them being disciples and true believers, but very ignorant. One thing that I think we can take away for our application this morning is that ignorance cleaves to all believers. I've never yet met once a believer who had all of the answers to all of the questions. And I hope you haven't either, because if they have, that person is full of themselves in a bad way. We're all ignorant of something. We're all incomplete in our understanding. We're all immature yet in our Christian walk. One of the great questions and answers of the Reformed heritage is the Heidelberg Catechism, when it asks, can anybody keep these commandments perfectly? It says, no, even the holiest men in this life have small beginnings of disobedience. There's always something that needs to be made more complete. None of us has arrived at where we need to be. And so this morning, what we have here in the picture of these disciples humbly and patiently listening to the Apostle Paul, yes and no, and answering his questions and, and talking about what they're ignorant of, is a model of how we ought to be. Teachable. The first step to learning is admitting that you don't know everything. And these show us a marvelous picture of how we are to be as believers. Simple and transparent. I don't know everything yet. Ready to receive instruction. The other thing that I think we can take away here for our application is uh, patience in instructing others. Listen to how Matthew Henry speaks of it. He says, those that have been left in ignorance and led into error should not be despised or rejected but they should be compassionately instructed. If you have doctrinal knowledge this morning, you're blessed. If you were trained up in the church and catechized and you were taught and you, you've learned and you, you've grown in knowledge and you have doctrinal understanding, you are blessed. But when you meet people who don't, Paul's a perfect model of how to treat them compassionately. He doesn't take His truth and knowledge and lord it over them. We don't get any sense or, or idea here that He's pulling out the hairs in His beard over every, question, every answer to the question that He raises. What you see here is a, is a patient person. What you see here is a person who's compassionate, slow to anger, not acting judgmentally, but being careful, perceiving the weakness and saying, let me help. That's how we're to be people of God when we treat people who haven't been learning as they ought. Patience. So we see confused disciples, and we see lastly, now confirmed disciples. It doesn't take too long to get through this section because it all just sort of happens now with rapid fire succession. We've seen the confusion. The Apostle Paul has diagnosed them. He knows where they are. He knows what they need. And so verse 5, we move to action. When he heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I like what it says here, it prefaces, when they had heard. I take from that that the apostle, realizing that there's many gaps in their understanding, has a mini a teaching session with them, and he understands that they need some basic information. 
so he talks about it. Perhaps he tells them about the Trinity. Perhaps he tells them about Jesus instituting this baptism and this washing with water. Perhaps he explains some things about the way of salvation. But the end result of it all is the Apostle Paul does something for them which is massively important for their sense of confirmation. He baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Remember their identity. They were Jewish believers who had heard the call of John the Baptist to receive this baptism of repentance. There's lots that they don't know, but it seems as if their faith and their spiritual identity is somehow wrapped up and around John the Baptist. And I think that's why our text tells us here that he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. What Paul does is by baptizing them and and describing in this way, he is making a point about where their faith is located, about whom they identify with, about that one who owns them now. It's Jesus Christ. They belong to the Lord. And that baptism signifies and seals it. That baptism tells them that every single spiritual grace they need is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they have been baptized into Him, it's theirs. It tells them this morning who owns them. It tells them about whom they are obligated to serve and to worship. It makes them confirmed about being members of the church. It's a great comfort. Baptism is a great comfort for the believer. I'll never tire of listening to Luther's story. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. But as the story goes, as he would come under a tremendous sense of awareness of battling spiritual forces of darkness, and he would say, the devil just wouldn't let him alone. Sometimes he'd pick up things and throw it at the devil, but then he would remind himself, I have been baptized. And as it reports, a tremendous peace of conscience began to settle into his soul. I've been baptized. I belong to Christ. I'm not my own. I've been purchased with the blood of the Savior. Paul baptizes them, and then he spirit gifts them. Look at verse 6. I said this is all about action. It moves quickly. Baptism and now... Verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Remember, we've said already that the way to understand the question at the outset here is not whether they've been regenerated and not whether the Spirit of God indwells upon them or in them. The question is, have they received this gift of the Holy Spirit, this extraordinary gift? And we went to... Acts chapter 8 to see that. This is an addition to something. This is an addition to their faith. This is a blessing upon blessing, if you will. And what it is here is is expressed very clearly. They're not being saved for the first time. They're being granted an extraordinary gift. And that is set forth here in the gifts that are spelled out. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. This is what Paul was trying to get at when he said, Have you received the gifts of the Spirit yet? Remember, again, we come back to the whole entry point to our text, which is mission. Paul sees this 
temple of Artemis or Diana casting its large shadow across the town with the culture of corruption it spawns. And he sees a vast mission field, but it's full of difficulty and he's by himself. He needs helpers. He needs people who are equipped with the Spirit of God to serve in the kingdom. Without getting into any kind of in-depth explanation of speaking in tongues, we already know what it is from the book of Acts. It's the ability to communicate the gospel in a foreign language, having never learned it yourself before. That's what Acts 2 says. They said, these are Galileans and we hear them in our own tongue. It's this ability to take up the message of Christ and to speak it in such a way that culture or foreign language doesn't stand in the way. It's an extraordinary gift. The gift of prophecy is much the same way. It is the ability or the capacity to take up the mysteries of the gospel and to speak them with fervency and boldness and incisiveness to people who are lost. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does. He takes these disciples who are already grounded in faith. They're believers, but they need some help. He takes people who have a lack of knowledge and confusion and some ignorance that they need to have cleaned up. He baptizes them to seal them into Christ and to confirm what their identity is in the Lord. And then he lays hands upon them that they may receive this great grace. Why? Because he wants co-workers, and that's the point of our text then. Why do we learn about this passage this morning? Why do we learn about Acts 19, 1 through 6? Isn't it peculiar? Isn't it peculiar? It's okay to shake our head and say, yes, it's a peculiar passage. Why would there be these people, 25 years after Christ's death, who seemingly don't know too much, haven't been baptized yet in the name of Jesus, but still trust in Him? Weren't there other people the Apostle Paul laid hands on and communicated the Spirit of God? Of course, he talks about it. He talks about imparting some spiritual gift. Well, I think we learn about it, first of all, because of who they are. Imagine not knowing your identity fully for half of a lifetime. Imagine having this hope that you're looking forward to one who is to come and yet he just doesn't ever seem to arrive and you were told he was right around the corner. And then one day you stumble across this apostle outside the gates of Ephesus. He begins to ask you questions that make you feel awkward. I believe all of this is here, first of all, for their sake, in order to encourage them in the Lord. It's there this morning, people of God, for those ones there to understand their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for them to feel the strength of the powers of the kingdom of God like they had never tasted of before. Remember, that was the whole point of their baptism. There is one who is coming, the great and king and mighty and powerful Lord, is on his way, so we have to get ready. And yet they've never tasted of those powers of the kingdom to come. And now all of a sudden, on a sleepy afternoon in Ephesus, they meet this apostle who's asking funny questions about the Spirit of God. Before the day is over, They have a whole new sense of the kingdom of God come with power. They have a whole new conception of the Holy Spirit. 
they have a whole new understanding of who Jesus is. It's for confirmation. You know, that's what God does for us. There are so many times that we're used to certain ideas or parroting certain things or claiming we believe in certain ideas, and yet they just don't seem to fully settle in our hearts. We know the right things. We understand the right words to say in the terminology, but yet they haven't quite settled in our soul. And there are wonderful breakthrough moments like this in life when the Spirit of God comes upon us and grants us that illumination and that understanding and that awareness and that deepening of conviction and resolve. Oh, how different you feel when that happens, right? It's a marvelous thing to not just know the right words, but to know them with experience. Why? In order that we may be partners in the kingdom of God. We've got a lot to do in life. We have marriages, we have homes, we have jobs. We have all kinds of things to do. But there's also another calling that goes right alongside of all of those things. It doesn't supplant it, it doesn't push those out to the periphery, or make them unimportant, but there's one thing that we still all have alongside of those other things, and that is a call to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom to advance His gospel, to spread the good news of His name, and to be a part of building His church. We can't do that until we're confirmed. We can't do that until we're made consciously aware of who it is we believe in, and to know that He's our Savior. That's exactly what Paul does for them. He confirms them in their faith. He confirms them in their understanding. He confirms them in their knowledge. He confirms them in their spiritual experience that they may be what? Partners in mission. That's what you take away this morning, people of God. Being confirmed in faith and your spiritual identity in the Lord Jesus, being made aware that every single spiritual grace is hidden with Christ in the heavenly places and your life is hid with Him. You're to be confirmed. You're to be strengthened. You're to be established in the knowledge of the truth. And when you are like these 12 disciples, you'll be what they were, confirmed in faith and ready for mission. Father, we thank you for a peculiar story because it uh, threads together so many elements which, uh, when we step back to take in the picture of a whole, captivate and arrest our attention because it speaks of things that are so practical and so near to our own life, such as how do we know who we are? Do we have assurance that our life is hid with God and the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we see that the forgiveness of our sins is not through ceremonies or self-effort, but it truly is in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? We hear the message this morning of the call to mission, and to be salt and light in the very place in which we live. But yeah, Lord, we can't do that without this great confirmation. So Lord, we plead with you that you would be our illuminator, our teacher, the one who impresses great truth upon our hearts and our minds. That this morning as we hear this story, it won't feel like a trip to the museum, but that it will uh, impress upon our hearts truth, that we would be persuaded of our identity, of our life being hid with God in Christ. And on account of that, we would be confirmed in faith and made ready for mission. So hear us for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.